You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. On December 31st, 2020, whether an agreement has been struck or not, the United Kingdom will formally exit the European Union. In the four years since the people of the UK voted leave in the historic UK-EU membership referendum of 2016, the road to Brexit has hardly been straightforward, but rather has been mired in stalemate politicking and even at times resentment too. The outcome has saw one of the worst-case scenarios for the UK and EU emerge as a potential possibility, with a no-deal Brexit being on the table at the present moment, despite the deadline for the UK's exodus quickly approaching. At the time of this podcast, that deadline's only a few short weeks away. In many ways, the politics of Brexit stretch back far beyond the past four years, but reflect centuries of contention between the UK and its European neighbours, and marks only the most recent phase in an ever-changing relationship. And while nationalism and Euro discontent are very much at the fore of the UK's decision to leave, these processes dig far deeper into the bedrock of British politics than just the rhetoric of the UKIP movement. What are the sources of Brexit and British discontent with the pan-European project? How has this impacted relations not only between the UK and the EU, but with long-standing partners like Canada and the US? And what does Brexit mean not only for the future of UK-EU relations, but the global community as a whole? To delve into these questions and more, I'm joined this week by Professor Akeem Hirleman. Professor Hillerman is a professor not only with the Department of Political Science here at Carleton, but also with the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies. He's also the co-director of Carleton's Center for European Studies and is an expert in the politics of the EU, democracy, and state theory. Professor Hillerman, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. So Brexit marks a massive critical juncture in European history probably the impact of which we're not going to fully grasp for years to come. And much has been said about Brexit and the sources of discontent towards European integration within the United Kingdom. Some have pointed to the migrant crisis, others to the rising tide of nationalism and populism that's swept across the Western world in recent years. But in your view, what are the sources of the UK's decision to leave the European Union? I think it's really two processes coming together, two factors. The first is the traditional British Euroscepticism, or at least very ambivalent attitude towards Europe. You might recall Churchill stating in the 1950s, the UK is with Europe, but not of Europe, uh, leading then to the belated membership of the United Kingdom in the European communities. The UK didn't join until the 1970s, and then immediately held a referendum on whether it really wanted to stay in the European communities, which was pressed for at the time by the Labour Party, the left of the Labour Party, to be exact. And then Margaret Thatcher, of course, on the other side of the political spectrum, also turned very much against further European integration in the 1980s. So in other words, critical positions regarding the EU and European integration are really anchored and have been anchored in the British mainstream parties, much more so than in any other member state of the European Union. But then, of course, the second factor, and you alluded to that in your question, is the general populist wave in the second decade of the 21st century. 2016, the year of the Brexit referendum, was also, of course, the year when Donald Trump was elected US president. And uh, it, it was really part of the same 
wave of discontent with mainstream capitalist democracy, which I think has been quite convincingly explained as stemming both from a backlash against globalization amongst people who perceive themselves as being economic losers of globalization, but also very much a cultural backlash against progressive values, against societal diversity, against gender equality, against uh, um, religious diversity, by people who cling to more traditionalist values. And I think both of these main factors together, the traditional British ambivalent attitude towards European integration and the populist wave, they came together in Brexit. Neither of the two factors would probably have sufficed alone to bring about Brexit, but they came together and, and made the Brexit vote possible. So the odyssey towards Brexit has been a long and winding road, to say the least, uh, with the UK's exit from the European Union being delayed and subject to debate and shifting around a myriad of times since the British citizens voted leave back in 2016. Yet in that time, however, it seems the UK's gained little traction in negotiating a deal with the EU. And now it seems as though a no-deal Brexit is a real possibility. So how did the UK reach this point where no-deal Brexit's now on the table? And what does a no-deal Brexit mean for the UK's fortunes in the future? Right. Yeah, well, we absolutely cannot say at this point whether there will be a deal. Um, and if so, it will come very, very late. So indeed, as you're saying, a no deal is a real possibility. And it's, I think this impasse stems from both parties' negotiation positions. The European Union has made it very clear that it wants to protect the benefits of EU membership, and that means that they want to make sure that a non-member state, as the UK is now, does not have the same access to the single market and the same rights uh, of cooperating with other European states as a member state. So, And, and this for the EU is important also, of course, to signal to um, Eurosceptics in the remaining member states that it does not pay to leave the European Union. So that's one factor. And on the other side, on the British side, the current government has been unwilling to contemplate any restrictions on British sovereignty because they feel that this is uh, the main gain of Brexit, that the UK has regained some of its sovereignty, but any agreement with the EU would mean that uh, some of that sovereignty is uh, being given, given up again. And uh, the British government hasn't been willing to really make the case that that is necessary, even though, in my view, it's clear that uh, that has to be and will have to be part of any agreement with the European Union post-Brexit. So right now, the negotiations are really hung up on two issues. One is uh, the EU's insistence on what they call a level playing field with the UK. Um, in a free trade constellation if one is agreed. And by that, they mean that, for instance, on issues of state aid to the economy, the UK would uh, need to follow rules that are similar to the rules of the European Union so that the UK cannot undercut the European market by becoming a low regulation market or one in which the economy is heavily subsidized. So that's the one issue. And the second issue is uh, the question of fisheries and, and access of European fishermen and women to British waters. So when both of these issues 
sort of display uh, these two factors that I mentioned earlier, the EU's unwillingness to grant anything to the UK that could be seen as a special deal, as cherry picking from the single market, and the UK's unwillingness of uh, making any concessions that would uh, give up some of the sovereignty uh, that, uh, that uh, has been regained, presumably, by Brexit. Now, um, no deal would, I think, be very bad for both parties, uh, but particularly for the United Kingdom, because it would have huge economic costs. I just read uh, an estimate that it would uh, reduce the British GDP by 2%. So that's very significant, especially, of course, in the time when the economy is already in crisis. No deal would mean logistical and infrastructure challenges. You might have seen that they just recently tested their processing facilities for trucks, and that led to very long lineups on, on highways of trucks. So we can expect something like this happening in a no-deal constellation. Of course, there's very problematic effects of a no-deal constellation on Ireland, where the issue of whether the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland can stay open, that question would uh, be on the agenda again. And of course, symbolically, it would also be uh, an extremely problematic image that would be portrayed that uh, these two uh, major powers, the EU and the UK, cannot come to an agreement with each other. So in that sense, uh, it's certainly not an outcome that is desirable, but it seems uh, both parties have really, uh, really dug in to some extent, which makes uh, finding an agreement so difficult. Often when it comes to discussing potential of finding an agreement uh, between the EU and UK, commentators and journalists have pointed to the comprehensive economic and trade agreement signed between the EU and Canada as a possible template for the UK. Now, obviously, there's major contextual differences between Canada's negotiations with the EU and developing CETA and where the UK currently stands. But I'm wondering, do you think that CETA may present a viable model for the UK and EU to follow regarding trade in the future? Well, CETA is a model only in the most general and abstract sense, in that it is a preferential trade agreement rather than a full membership in the single market or customs union, which, by the way, uh, the UK still enjoys until the end of this year uh, under the transition arrangements of Brexit. And that's why we haven't really seen any economic effects of Brexit yet, but that will end on December 31st of this year. So CETA is a template in the sense that uh, a preferential trade agreement is the only thing that the UK government has been willing to negotiate with the EU, they didn't want anything that would have entailed continued membership in the single market. But uh, the differences to the CETA agreement of any potential UK-EU agreement are quite significant. First of all, the UK wants more from the EU than uh, what Canada has in CETA, for instance, regarding financial services, but also the European Union Union insists on these so-called level playing field protections in an agreement with the United Kingdom because they say the volume of trade, and that's correct, between the EU and the UK is so much larger than the volume of trade between Canada and the UK uh, that you cannot just 
copy and paste the agreement that Canada and the EU made in uh, the CETA agreement. And that's why the EU is insisting on these additional level playing field protections. So the content of the agreement will look very different, will have to look very different. The only thing where uh, CETA could be a template is sort of the, the general nature, the general type of agreement that is being negotiated. So sticking with the Canadian perspective for a minute, last week, Canada and the UK relations hit a bit of a major landmark with both states striking an interim trade agreement. Now, obviously, there's still much to negotiate in regards to this agreement because at this point, it's very much just a roadmap. But what do you think this means for Canada and the UK as far as a partnership goes? Do you find the agreement surprising or is this kind of be expected given the history of like-minded collaboration between these two states? Yeah, I think it's entirely unsurprising. Uh, it's mainly for now an attempt to um, protect the benefits of the CETA agreement because uh, Canada and the UK still for now trade under the CETA agreement, but that will end on December 31st. And something needed to be put in place to keep the preferential terms of trade between Canada and the UK in place. And that's from what we know, what this transitional interim agreement does. But we haven't seen the details. They haven't been released. There are a couple of uh, very interesting aspects that I would be very interested to see. For instance, the provision on dairy, which, as you know, is always a big issue whenever Canada negotiates a trade agreement. In the CETA agreement, Canada had promised certain dairy quotas to the EU. Uh, now that the UK has left the EU, these quotas will not be taken away from the EU. So the UK will be requesting additional quotas. Uh, and uh, that, of course, is something that does not uh, go well with Canadian dairy producers and their political supporters. So I don't know how that uh, issue was resolved in the interim agreement. And if it wasn't resolved in the interim agreement, it will certainly come back when the new permanent agreement is negotiated, which is supposed to happen beginning next year. So for now, this essentially just kicks the can down the road, if you will, and that's positive for the trade between Canada and the UK. But the really uh, important and also potentially contentious issues will likely come up in uh, the negotiations beginning next year for a bilateral agreement between the two and issues such as dairy or, or other regulatory issues will be on the agenda. It's a small part of me that really hopes they address the price of scotch because, oh man, it's been going up. <laughs> Yeah, that's always also an issue where everyone who trades with Canada finds Canadian rules on uh, liquor uh, extremely complicated to deal with. Okay, so much of the discussion on the EU is generally grounded on trade, but the free flow of people is also at the heart of the idea of a united Europe. And with the UK pulling out of the EU, I'm wondering, how is this going to impact migration and borders. You know, and you mentioned it earlier, for the UK, there's particular issues as well. Contentious spaces like Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales. How's Brexit going to impact them? That's a really important question. And there's lots of, uh, lots of aspects here to, to disentangle. So first of all, it's important to keep in mind that the free movement of EU citizens within the European Union was one of the key issues in the Brexit debate. The ability of people from other EU member states to move to the United Kingdom and 
take up a job there, which many people, particularly from Eastern Europe, did. And that was uh, what uh, a lot of the pro-Brexit voices mobilized against. So it wasn't, in, in the case of the Brexit debate, actually so much refugee movements or something like that as this intra-EU migration. So that between the EU and the UK has ended or will end with Brexit and the UK will need to uh, decide what kind of migration policy it wants to put in place. But for the remaining European Union, the big issue and hugely contentious issue is the issue of refugees, uh, where we've seen obviously in the Mediterranean a terrible situation with lots of people dying, trying to reach European shores, uh, the uh, European Union increasingly just trying to push these people back and keeping them out uh, because they are unable to agree internally on any mechanism to redistribute uh, these asylum seekers between the member states. And that has led to the situation where countries like Greece and Italy are overwhelmed and others uh, particularly Eastern European countries say that they don't want anything to do with it. So this is one of the most crucial issues that the European Union will have to address. And it's really problematic because it exposes the deep diversity in perceptions and the very significant differences of opinion between the member states in the EU. And then you also mentioned the contentious spaces inside the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, Scotland in particular. And indeed, Brexit could really upset the uh, political situation there. The uh, situation in Northern Ireland is such that the withdrawal agreement that was reached and that was the basis for the UK withdrawing in January of this year is supposed to keep the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland open. And the idea is that that will help protect the peace in Ireland. But we have seen that the British government has actually questioned their full commitment to this provision in their uh, recent single market bill. So in the case of a no-deal Brexit, the issue of the Irish border will be back on the agenda. And uh, in the case of Scotland, of course, the issue of Scotland potentially leaving the UK and, and perhaps rejoining the EU is also an issue that, that is contentious. And again, in the case of a no-deal Brexit, that debate will be accelerated while probably reaching a deal with the European Union would mean uh, that the situation would not escalate, at least not as quickly. So overarchingly, what do you think the future holds for EU-UK relations? Not just in terms of trade, but I'm kind of thinking of the larger existential issues facing the global community. The EU, for example, isn't just a free trade zone, but a united regulatory space. In the case of something like the battle against climate change, the execution of cohesive Europe-wide policy and regulation is of paramount importance. Does Brexit herald an end to cosmopolitanism in Europe? I don't think it does signal the end of cosmopolitanism, but it certainly exposes contradictions, challenges, the contested character of cosmopolitanism in Europe, I think. And you mentioned the example of climate, and that is a very interesting example, because uh, the United Kingdom, regardless of all of its EU skepticism, has actually been one of the leading countries in the EU to push for uh, climate change policies and policies that address climate change. And the EU UK also internationally is trying to promote that. And, and when they now talk to Canada, for instance, 
they have been trying to put that issue front and center because they know, they know it's something that Canada's government is also interested in. Even the pro-Brexit government of the UK would certainly not align, say, with the Trump administration in the United States. So uh, there, there are some uh, complication and complexities here. I do see both the UK and the EU having a continued commitment to multilateralism for sure. Cosmopolitanism is, of course, something else, and, and maybe cosmopolitanism as such uh, will take more of a hit. For sure, Brexit has uh, exposed that there's a lot of opposition, a backlash against cosmopolitanism, and that has not really receded. We see that in the remaining member states of the European Union as well, not at the level where I would expect other member states to leave anytime soon, but uh, for instance, in the opposition. Uh, to taking migrants and refugees uh, amongst uh, some member states, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, that shows that uh, nationalism is a very strong political force and any idea that the European project could sort of really overcome nationalism, uh, these ideas are at the very least premature. So lastly, I just, I'm interested in hearing about your work. You've been a professor at Carleton University for quite some time doing diverse array of research on European politics. But what are you working on these days? Tell us a bit about your work. Yeah, I've been at Carleton for almost exactly 14 years. And uh, my main work has always been on the European Union. And it continues, uh, obviously, to be an issue that I work on. But uh, I, I've recently become more interested also in relationships between Canada and Europe, and Europe here meaning both the EU and the United Kingdom. So I have uh, a research project uh, in which you, of course, are also involved that looks at the impact of Brexit on uh, Canada-Europe relations, both on, on the level of policymaking, but also in terms of political discourse. And that is something that I've always found very interesting. So how is Brexit discussed within Canada? Uh, and what is Canadian public opinion on Brexit? And we've done, I think, some very interesting research here, looking at Canadian political parties and their quite distinct positioning on Brexit, for instance, with the Conservatives taking a very decisively pro-Brexit position, which seems to be primarily motivated by, uh, by signaling to their own political base, because Brexit is very popular there. And we um, have uh, a paper uh, under review at the moment, which I co-authored with uh, Frédéric Meron from Université de Montréal and Steve White here at Carlton, where we look at public opinion in Canada on Brexit, and that exposes very deep partisan divides between conservatives on the one hand and supporters of uh, more uh, centrist or progressive parties in Canada on the other hand. So that is a very important sort of new dimension of my research in recent years. But uh, I also uh, just got a so-called Jean Monnet network together, which looks at transatlantic trade politics uh, with a number of European partners and also one partner in the United States. And there the idea is to look at not just a Brexit, but at broader debates about trade agreements, focusing not on policy issues, but more on the contested politics of uh, trade agreements that uh, you could really see in recent years in Europe, increasing debates about whether 
um, international trade agreements should be pursued and, and what provisions uh, they should have. So that links to my longstanding interest in questions of politicization of European integration. So these are some of the issues that I'm working on. Um, they link nicely uh, and they bring a Canadian angle in more explicitly than my work, say, five years ago did. But uh, I do remain primarily interested in EU politics. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, it was such a great conversation. I'm glad we got to have it. No, it's great. Thanks so much. That was, that was excellent. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.